Well, this is our 34th message from the book of Ephesians. <laughs> yeah, and I, I really wish that I could preach them all at once, because I, I mean, I, I think they all fit together. It's also our third wild and weird and wacky sermon on spiritual warfare. So we better pray. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would open our hearts and that you would help us to believe your word to us delivered through the power of your Holy Spirit. And that, Lord God, we would walk in what's real and abandon what's false, that we'd come home to you, Father, in Jesus' name, through the power of your Spirit. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6 Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the accuser, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. According to Paul, we're in some sort of struggle or battle. I don't know about you, but I find that strangely encouraging. M. Scott Peck writes this, life is difficult, and once we truly know life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, life is no longer difficult. And so I find the message a little encouraging. It's, it's like we're on a cruise ship, and everyone is talking about how much fun that they're, they're having here. It's a loudspeaker plays Louis Armstrong singing, you know, I see trees of green and Sky blue, or whatever he says, uh, for me and for you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Everybody's happy. Everybody's smiling. And, and then we notice that the ship's on fire. And suddenly a, a wound open up, opens up on the side of, of, of someone. And then, and then another person. And then suddenly the person that you're dancing with drops to the ground in a pool of blood. Well, it's just a relief when someone cries out, Hey, this isn't a cruise ship. This is a battleship, and we're at war. We're at war. Henry David Thoreau wrote this. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation. In other words, they act like life is easy, and I'm enjoying the cruise. Well, all around, all hell is breaking loose. And within them, their hearts are absolutely paralyzed, in fear. It's just nice when private desperation, quiet desperation, becomes public desperation. And someone says, we're at war. And this isn't easy. This is hard. And yet Jesus seems to be saying the brutally hard can be easy. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and, and yet look at him. His yoke is a cross. Well, anyway, Paul writes, we battle. But to be more precise, he actually writes, we wrestle. Jesus battles and we wrestle. Well, chapter 1, verse 10, you may remember Paul told us God's plan for the fullness of time is to anakephalio, to unite all things under one sacred head, now wounded, unite all things in Christ. Verse 11, and that God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. 2.14, he told us that God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. 4.6, that God is father of all, over all, through all, and ill. It was Paul that wrote, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things things, love does not fail, never fails. Love, 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 love. Sometimes, you know, when I talk like the Apostle Paul, I think some people think I'm denying that there's a battle and that we have an enemy. You see, Paul is not denying that there's a battle. 
I mean, he's chained in a Roman prison cell while he's writing this. He doesn't deny the battle, and he certainly doesn't deny that we have an enemy. He's just saying that the enemy is not people. It's not Pharaoh. It's not Pontius Pilate or Saul of Tarsus, you know, who persecuted the church. It's not the Romans, nor the Jews, nor Hitler, or the president of, of Iran. It's the devil. And the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, so in a way, it's kind of, kind of a, a, a relief. You're not paranoid. We really are at, at war. There's, there is a battle, and we do have an enemy. We are under attack, but how horrifying is it to discover that we're really not battling Democrats? or Republicans. Our enemy is Satan and the dominion of hell. And who is sufficient for a fight like that? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. You, you know, I think we all know something's wrong and, and so we all kind of really do want to wrestle but who is sufficient for this fight precious father why have you given me this desire to wrestle and then made me such a stinky warrior have I focused too much on my boots and on my fame and my stretchy pants? That's a classic movie. <laughs> Nacho Libre. It's actually based on the true story of Sergio Benitez, a Mexican priest who funded an orphanage, supported an orphanage, all out of his money that he gained being a professional wrestler. Nacho prays, why have you given me this desire to wrestle, but made me such a stinky warrior? It's a great question that I think we could all ask. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the principalities and powers, against the cosmic uh, rulers and powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words, and literally what Paul writes here is, uh, that word may be given to me in opening up my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery, the mysterion, the secret of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Declare it boldly, the mystery of the gospel. We're to proclaim it, you see, with our whole lives. And Paul was to proclaim it boldly with his mouth. And what is the mystery of the gospel? Well, Paul has, has told us. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. The mystery of his will, the plan for the fullness of time to unite anakephalio, all things in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3, 3. The mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Gentiles are those that don't believe. 
The mystery is that those who don't believe will believe. That those who have not been chosen are chosen because they are chosen in Christ Jesus. So, so it's not simply that we don't wrestle against people. We wrestle for people, for all people, against the accuser and his dominion of darkness. We wrestle. Pale is the Greek word. It's a noun, and in all of Scripture, it only appears here. Palaio is uh, the Greek verb, and it shows up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob wrestles the God-man at the edge of the promised land. Well, scholars ask, why did Paul use the word wrestle? When he could have used a, a word like fight or battle or, or war, why wrestle? Well, some people think it's because Wrestling is intimate, hand-to-hand. -hand. Intimate, passionate, visceral. You, you feel it, and I think there's something to that. You know, Paul is in prison right now, chained in a, in a Roman prison, about to be executed. If you choose to wrestle, don't be surprised if something wrestles back. And don't be surprised if the principalities and powers of this world arrest you, beat you, and throw you in prison. Well, wrestling is intimate, it's passionate, it's, it's visceral. It's like a battle, and yet wrestling is a sport. Marcus Bart writes this, the effect of Paul's word choice is an antidote against the tragic dualistic worldview. He's pointing out, you see, that the battle between God and Satan is not like a battle between equal opposite forces. It's, it's, it's not like the battle is in any way in question. In fact, God has already won in Christ Jesus, Colossians 2.15. Paul teaches that at the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Jesus. Maybe that's why Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. It's finished. Jesus bore the sins, of, he bore the sins of the world away. So all the accusers' accusations are what? Nothing but lies, just lies. The accuser has been disarmed. It's finished. So Jesus battled and we wrestle, pale. Pale is the root of the Greek word palestra. This is the palestra in uh, Pompeii, which was covered with ash from Mount Vesuvius shortly after Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. A palestra, a palestra was a gymnasium. More specifically, it was a training center for wrestlers. Maybe we wrestle because we're being trained, because we're being disciplined and discipled, because we're being shaped and formed into the image of Jesus, the wrestler, the warrior, the, the great warrior. And yet, you know, now when you read the New Testament, I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but well, God, Jesus, they, they just don't seem to be worried about the war. I mean, I don't think Jesus is like stressed out about the devil or about your sin for, for that matter. He's already defeated the devil, already forgiven all your sins, and now he's showing you the victory that is already won as he shapes you in his own image. You know, after the first message on spiritual warfare, a friend emailed asking, well, isn't this just, after watching the, the video, isn't this just fear-mongering? And I, I suppose it, it could be fear-mongering, except that I know every one of us is already afraid. We're all afraid. We're afraid of death and hell, the devil, 
power of darkness and taxes, we're afraid. We're all, we're all afraid, and, and we all deny our fears. But God, God walks us into our fears. It's in the place of fear that Christ conquers. It's on the hill of the skull that God reveals his glory. It's in the valley of the shadow that God grows faith. The faithfulness of Christ in us. So maybe that's why we wrestle against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places, for God is making us in the image of Jesus, the, the God-man, the wrestler. I wrestled in seventh grade. I hated it. I just hated it. I got pinned in every single match. And then at the, at the last match, the last meet, while I was watching the eighth grade boys, the champions, as I was standing there watching on the side of the mat, John Wallace, who sometimes watches these messages online, John Wallace came up behind me and pants me. <laughs> Seventh grader standing there on the edge of the mat with his shorts around his ankles, and it was on videotape. I hated wrestling. In seventh grade, wrestling made me feel naked and weak and more absurd than Nacho Libre in his stretchy pants. Every time I wrestled, I knew I'd lose. Maybe that's why I lost. I hated wrestling. And yet, until seventh grade, up until seventh grade, I loved wrestling. In fact, my favorite thing to do was wrestle my dad. When I did, I, I would feel my own weakness, but I would also feel his strength. And so I came to know my own weakness and enjoy his strength. I knew that I would inherit his strength. So even if I lost, I won. And if I won, I knew it was because my dad um, chose to lose so I could win. I loved to wrestle my dad, and it shaped me in his image. In Genesis 32, Jacob is attacked by the God-man at the river Jabbok on the edge of the Promised Land. They wrestle all night, and, and Jacob prevails. But it's obvious that the God-man is letting him win. For as the sun rises, the God-man just touches Jacob's hip, and, and, and it rips the bone right out of the socket. And then the God-man blesses Jacob and names him Israel. It means wrestles with God. Jacob wrestled and lost his pride and won God's blessing. He was made in the image of Jesus, the God-man. And then the next thing that happens is Jacob Israel blesses Esau, his brother. We well, see, St. Paul is a Hebrew born of Hebrews. He's a picture of Israel, the new Israel. And I think he's saying, not only do we wrestle God, because, you know, that was the experience of Israel in the Old Testament, right? They did a lot of wrestling, but who were they wrestling with? They were, it was God. That was the, their problem, right? They were always wrestling God. Not only do we wrestle God, not only does the Lord wrestle with us, Paul is saying, not only does he wrestle with us, but now the Lord wrestles in us against the devil, we're his body. He destroys the works of the devil through us and in this way shapes us in his image, a non-stinky, great warrior. A few months ago, a friend of mine was here at the church, was praying for me and regarding sermons and just how stressed I'd get sometimes and how much work it, get, it is. And she heard the Lord say this. She heard the Lord say, the time Peter spends with me each week brings me great joy. I love it when Peter wrestles with me, but too often he struggles with me instead. Both the wrestling and the struggling will make him tired, but the struggling makes him discouraged. The evil one wants him to be discouraged. I want Peter to wrestle with me and be filled with the same great joy that I feel. You know, I think I... I get discouraged and I struggle when I begin to doubt that Jesus loves me and that Jesus could win or not that he 
could win. I, I know he wins, but that he would actually win in me and through me. In fact, every week that I preach, I, I get to this place where I feel just naked and experience my own weakness. I mean, I know it's coming, but, but I still feel it, just this incredible weakness. And yet in that place, it's there that I also come to feel his strength and find myself covered in Jesus, the armor of God. Ephesians 3.10, Paul told us that it's through us. Did you know this, that it's through us? It's through you that God makes his victory in Christ Jesus known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It's with you, with your life, that he delivers a message to the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Well, anyway, Nacho, Nacho in Nacho Libre, he falls on his knees and he prays, Precious Father, why did you give me this desire to wrestle and then make me such a stinky warrior? Have I focused too much on my boots, my fame, and my stretchy pants? <laughs> Answer, yes. The Father wants you to know your own weakness and feel his strength and then put him on, put Jesus on. Ephesians 2.10, walk in the good works, the great wrestling moves, which God prepared beforehand that we would wrestle in them, walk in them. So Nacho, in the movie, he stops wrestling his pride at a certain point, and he wrestles for love. He wrestles in love. <laughs> So it's when Nacho stops wrestling for pride and begins wrestling in love that he conquers the enemy, gets the girl, and saves the orphans. And you saw it coming, didn't you? Because that's the plot to every good movie. That's the plot to every good story. In other words, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love wins. And of course it does, because God is love. You know, we may confess it with our lips, but God is wrestling it into our hearts. He's wrestling that truth into the hearts of his church. He's wrestling it into our hearts, and through us, wrestling it into all people, the Gentiles. And so we wrestle not against people, but for people. We wrestle against Satan and the dominion of hell, and the match is already scripted, like on All-Star Wrestling, you know, or WWF. It's already scripted. Satan has lost. He has been disarmed. He has been thrown down to earth in great fury, Revelation chapter 12, been thrown down to earth in great fury, for he knows his time is short. And so what can he do? What does he do? I am the hottest thing in professional wrestling. I am the baddest dude that walks the streets today, Chump Hogan. And you think about that, Chump, because you could not beat me. You could not even beat Sylvester Stallone in the movie Rocky III. It was a draw. I'd have squashed that peanut in 30 seconds. I'm going to pick up that big Andre. I'm going to press the dude once, oh my. press the dude twice, yeah, see, and then toss him right out of the ring. And Adrian and I are going to walk with 50 grand when just the two of us are left. Ain't that right, Adrian? Right. Wait, wait, wait. Have you checked out the lateral deltoid lately? The check lateral deltoid? Hmm, check that out. <laughs> Man, when I was a kid, those guys would intimidate me, you know, Saturday morning. Oh, by the way, do you know who that is? Jesse the Body Ventura, who went on to be the ruler of Minnesota. <laughs> so anyway, what does Satan do? What can Satan do? Well, he can intimidate. He can lie. He can frighten you, 
or he can try to frighten you. He tries to convince you that you can't win. Why? Because Jesus hasn't won or Jesus doesn't love you. You know, if we think we can't win, we won't fight. Even though Jesus said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus gives us authority, but we won't use the authority if we don't believe that he's won and that we have that authority. But if you know Jesus wins and you know he gives you authority because you've surrendered to his authority, then you can say, in the name of Jesus the Christ, get behind me, Satan. In the name of Jesus the Christ, be gone. In the name of Jesus the Christ, stop. You can take authority, and you can command the demons to go. If you're ever in a situation, though, where you, where you say it, and a demon doesn't do it, don't panic. Don't panic. Call on Jesus to show you where the devil has a place, like we talked about last time. You don't have to get this. You don't have to fix the place, because I don't think we can fix the place. You don't have to fix the place. He's just asking you to... Surrender the place. And if it feels hard to surrender the place, don't panic. Don't panic. Don't quit. God is teaching you to wrestle. He's teaching you to trust his love and receive his mercy. He's training you, disciplining you, and it takes a lifetime. The devil wants you to panic. The devil wants you to give in to fear and give up on God, who is love. You see, when we give up on love, we listen to the principles and powers of this world who teach us to rely upon the power of our own flesh, who teach us pride and then imprison us in shame, who motivate us with fear because they know only fear. This world knows fear. They know fear. They teach us to create for the devil a place to lend to him our hands, our feet, to to do his work, Ephesians 4.27, give no place to the devil. Years ago, Susan and I were praying for a friend for whom we had prayed for years, with whom we had wrestled with Jesus through layer after layer of lies and ritual abuse, demonic oppression. Now, I know this is really weird, and most people have not had this experience, but at one point, Susan and, and our friends saw Satan. Whether you call that a vision or whatever, I don't know, but he was utterly terrifying. Hurling accusations, threats. And yet, as we prayed... As we prayed, Susan said, and, and our friends saw it too, they said, as we prayed, he gradually shrank down to this little man standing on our friend's coffee table like a comic character squeaking accusation. Like that. And then Susan and this friend saw Jesus enter the room. He walked up to the coffee table, bent down, picked up Satan in his hand, shoved him in his pocket, smiled at the two of them, turned around and walked out. And then Susan heard Jesus say this. With fear, you put flesh on the evil one. What's fear? 366 times in the Bible, God says, do not fear. I've heard that's the most repeated commandment in all of Scripture. It certainly must be the most violated commandment in all of Scripture. What's fear? Well, isn't fear, fear of anything other than God, isn't fear faith in the devil? I mean, you might need to think about this a while, but, but isn't your fear faith in the devil? You know, Jesus taught that there's only one that we should fear, and that was his Father in heaven. And then two verses later, he says, so, fear not. You see, the, the old man, my old sinful man, fallen humanity knows nothing but fear. Maybe that's all God has to work with, fear, fear, fear. And so what does he say? Look, look, hey, fear only me, only me. You fear only me. And then God, who is love, says, now, Fear not. 
Perfect love casts out fear, wrote John. Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead is the revelation of perfect love. God in Christ Jesus casts out fear and destroys Satan's place. Fear of anything other than God is faith in the devil and makes a place for the devil. So don't hide your fears. So if you think that's what I'm saying, that, oh, we've got to come to church now and act like we're not afraid when we really are, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. Don't hide your fears. Don't deny your fears. Pay attention, I mean, observe your fears. Don't obey your fears, but pay attention to your fears. Shine light on your fears because, you see, every fear reveals a place where you don't believe that God is good and that he is love and that he is all-powerful and so love has conquered and so you are forgiven and so your failures become the demonstration of his glory and your pain is not retribution from a vengeful God your pain is discipline from a loving father bound and determined to give you his entire kingdom fear is faith in the devil it's glory given to the devil it's a place for the devil do not fear you know at one point the realm of the demonic I, there's a, even a particular time I remember in seminary after I'd seen something the realm of the demonic I think was my greatest fear and then as an answer to my own prayer that God would become more real to me God led me into my greatest fear. And that place of my greatest fear revealed God's greatest glory and also revealed to me something that we all struggle with all the time and that's the schemes of the devil. You know, when I first encountered the demonic, I was just shocked at what the demons would say because there were things I had heard for, for years, and not as freaky weird voices coming out of someone, but as thoughts in my own head. And the demons did not say, listen to Led Zeppelin backwards, or, or read Harry Potter books over and over again, or vote for the Antichrist. No, demons would say stuff like this, you suck. You're a piece of crap. God doesn't love you. We might love other, not you. He hates you. You don't deserve to be forgiven. <laughs> you can't be forgiven. Jesus and his cross is weak. It's weak, it's just weak. It's insufficient and ineffective. It doesn't work for you. Not the likes of you. So you might as well just go to hell. Well, the more I heard those things and the more I checked my Bible, the more I realized that those statements are, are all lies. And the more shocked I was when I heard those statements coming out of the beautiful mouth of the bride, the Lord's bride. It was from church that I heard, Christ crucified and risen from the dead is not enough to save all. He can't save, you must confess this, he can't save all. Either God doesn't want to save all or God isn't able to save all, but, but no matter what, God will torture a bunch of people and arrange for them to be tortured in the most horrific way you can imagine forever and ever and ever without end. That's what I heard. That's called the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. It's the doctrine of the greatest imaginable fear. I discovered that the church hadn't always taught the idea, but became entrenched in the idea around 500 AD when the church was conscripted by the Roman Empire and actually became a principality and power of this world. You know, the promise of worldly rewards and the threat of irreversible and endless torture grants the institutional church a whole bunch of worldly power. But it does incredible violence to the 
glory of God and the veracity of his word. And, and talk about giving the devil a place. It gives the devil an eternal place. Eternal security. I mean, the doctrine gives the devil a home. For Hades is not thrown into the lake of fire. As scripture says, it's a revelation says, such that death is no more. No, Hades is preserved. Death is eternally maintained by God and his word. Endless death in hell. It means Jesus did not destroy the works of the devil. And God maintains, actually maintains the works of the devil. And the accusations of the devil are eternally and forever valid. It means Jesus did not take away the sins of the world. It means that God will fail in making mankind in his own image and likeness and filling all things with himself and calling everything good on the seventh day and entering his rest. It means that all things will not be united in Christ Jesus, like Paul says in Ephesians 10. And God does not accomplish all things according to the counsel of his will, like he says in 111. And God has not broken down the dividing wall of hostility, like he says in 214. And Gentiles all not, are not heirs of the promise of the same body as, as us, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, 6. And God is not father of all, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 6. Or, or if he is father of all, he endlessly torments his own children. You see, that's not discipline. That's torture. I mean, they may look the same from the outside for a moment, but they are absolutely off because one is a function of love and one is a function of accusation and hate. And so God... And his wrath, God's wrath, God's wrath must, according to the doctrine, eternally continue, can never come to an end. So God must be eternally unsatisfied with Christ, who is the end, the end. Unending, eternal, conscious torment. I mean, does it not mean that love fails? That Jesus fails? And Satan wins. Ah, who would suggest such an idea? I mean, maybe I'm missing something, and, and I've been struggling with this for decades now, but it seems to me that what most folks mean by hell is not only deeply unbiblical, it gives an eternal place to the devil, claims that the death and resurrection of Jesus is insufficient and that God is not love or God is less powerful than your standard sinner and God, my Father, is into endless torture. And so, if that's true, you and I have absolutely everything to fear. Fear, fear, fear. And you know, I didn't learn that doctrine from Scripture. But the church, the Lord's bride, this, this past Tuesday, Andrew, myself, and members of, of our prophetic prayer group that meet with people and pray for them during, during the week. We had a monthly meeting. And uh, this last Tuesday, we, Tuesday night, we met up here in the sanctuary around the cross and around those 12 stones that Susan and I placed there last year as an Ebenezer to remind us of where the Lord had, had brought us. We spoke of the sermons that, that I was preaching and are calling us a church. And then we took... This sword, which I don't know if you know this, but it always hangs on the back of the cross. There's a story behind it. But we took this sword and we ran around the circle confessing our fears, confessing the things that hold us back and bind us down because we thought God just kind of wanted us to do that. And then one after another, when we, after we confessed our fears, we took the sword and symbolically, you know, cut them off, cut the fears off. Well, after the meeting, 
and several people had already left. One of the, the members grabbed Susan and she said, I, I saw something during that thing we did with the sword. It kind of freaked her out. And so the two of them came and got me, and she said, what I saw is suddenly I saw this beautiful woman, an extremely attractive woman. As I, as I looked at this beautiful woman, I noticed that she seemed to be making gestures with her mouth, like seductive sorts of gestures. And, and I thought she was making some sort of weird suggestive movement with her tongue. But then as I looked, I realized that her tongue was a snake. It was a white snake. And when we saw it, we all ran up together, grabbed the snake, uh, took the sword, cut off its head, and then we pulled the snake's body out, uh, out of the woman, turning her inside out in, in the process. Well, my wife, Susan, I think she was stressed about good-looking women coming in here with snakes coming out of their mouths or something, but she said, well, that, that woman was speaking a lie. And, and then I said, I said this. I said, I think I, I know who the woman is. The woman is the Lord's bride, and she's been speaking the devil's lies. It's so confusing, discombobulating, uh, to see such a vile thing come out of such a beautiful face. And the Lord clearly loves his bride, and we are his bride, but we must stop speaking Satan's lies. You see, I think that is our calling, to kill the snake and pull it, pull the lie out of the woman. The sanctuary is not a cruise ship. And you know that, or you wouldn't still be here. This is not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. It's a little old wooden battleship designed to go where others will not go, and I think commissioned to pull the snake from the bride. Many years ago now, I had an experience that really changed my life. I've spoken of it a, a few times. It must have been about three o'clock in the morning and Susan and I were praying with our friend that had gone through so much ritual abuse. I know this sounds insane, but I was standing over her with a cup of communion wine. You remember last time we talked about how the eternal covenant supersedes and undercuts all other covenants, it breaks all other covenants. I was standing over her with a cup of communion wine, and Satan, I, I don't think a demon, that's a long story, but Satan was manifesting in her body. I had bound him in Jesus' name so he could not lie. We had found the thing that had given him a place and offered it to Jesus. I remember I was just so angry. I, I mean, it, I don't know that it was my anger, but I was just, I was so angry at evil. And I remember, I knew that he was about to go and, and I commanded him to go and I, I just yelled. I remember it just came out of me. I yelled, Jesus wins, doesn't he? And then in this absolutely agonized voice as he left, I heard him say, Jesus always wins. I remember I, I just stood there in shock. Does he always win? You know, the serpent, the snake, is a liar. But I think that was the truth, forced like a sword through his bloodless lips as he was cast out. The, the woman, the woman Christ's church, the woman spoke Satan's lie and Jesus forced Satan to speak the truth. Jesus is the truth. And he has conquered. He has conquered. Jesus always wins. I mean, search the scriptures on this one. Jesus always wins. Even when he loses, especially when he loses, he wins. Even when we take him and we nail him to the tree, he wins. He wins us, and we win all things with him. I stood there in shock. But I think not just because Jesus wins, but the amazing realization that he actually wins in me and through me. I mean, if you don't know me, I'm just me, okay? I'm not, I mean, that's the, that's the, 
talk to my kids, all right? But anyway, that he wins through me. That's, that's the amazing thing. Nacho Libre, the seminarian terrified of demons, the seventh grade boy sent on the edge of the eighth grade wrestling match with his shorts around his ankle. He wins through me. Because you see, it wasn't me. It was Jesus in me, or me in him. In other words, I was strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. I not only knew about him, this is the other thing, I not only knew about him, I knew him. I mean, I felt him crush the head of the ancient serpent and use my heel to do it. And for a moment, if only just for a moment, I, I realized I have nothing to fear. I'm free. Free to love like Jesus in the very image of God. You know, I think that's why Jesus calls us. Let's wrestle. Come wrestle. We're going to wrestle. I'm going to wrestle my kingdom right into your heart. And so on that night, well, the darkest of nights, right? Uh, the night when this entire world plotted against its creator <laughs> and prepared to nail him to the tree. On that night, the word of God took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he said, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And this is before anybody had said the sinner's prayer, right? Or gotten a booklet or whatever. But he said that. Uh, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Jesus wins. And, and you see, until you trust that word, you create a place for the evil one. And you trap yourself in hell. But you will trust that word. Because Jesus always wins. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you always win. I mean, if there's one winner, we want it to be you. And so, Lord God, this morning we say to you, you have won us. We're yours. And so, Lord God, together we confess our faith in the devil. I don't even know if you can call that faith, but we confess that we have believed his lies. In other words, Lord God, we confess our sin, that we have turned to so many other things. We've given up on love and turned to the opposite of love. But we thank you that that even exhibits your love for us. So we thank you, Lord God, for your grace. And now, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would fill us, that you would be the faithfulness on us, that you, that you would be the truth around our, our waist. You'd be the peace on our feet. You'd be the righteousness on our chest. You'd be the hope on our heads. Will you be the faith that we pick up for quenching the flaming darts of the evil one? And we thank you, Lord God, that you hand us yourself. You are the word. And we wield you. We speak you, Jesus. Just wow. In your name we pray. In your name we worship. In your name we commune, Lord Jesus. Amen. Savior, worthy of honor and glory, worthy of all our praise, you overcame Jesus. Awesome in power forever, awesome and great is your name, you overcame. Amen. God is love, and did you hear what you just said? that all authority is yours. 
Every victory is yours. So that should raise an obvious question. Why are we afraid? So, so, so this week, this week, pay attention to your fears. I don't mean obey your fears, just observe your fears. Okay, because they're actually not yours. You're going to give them up and they're not very real. Because what are your fears? Well, well they're evidence that you have believed a lie. Now, listen, you can be sad. You can say, ouch. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Okay, you can have grief. In other words, there are things in this world that, that hurt. Um, but, so I guess you can, you can fear God like you fear the dentist, okay? <laughs> a good dentist. In other words, okay, this procedure will hurt, but it's good. And listen, wrestling practice will soon be over, okay? <laughs> And, and then you will have something eternal called faith. And, 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 and you won't battle the evil one f forever. Uh, it, it, that faith will, will be this abundant gift for all of, all of eternity. But, but this week, pay attention to your fears. And, and then when, when they pop up, hunt them down and ask yourself this question. What am I afraid of? What lie have I believed that I would be now so afraid? And then preach the gospel to yourself. Preach truth to yourself, and then repent, and then worship and be free. In Jesus' name, he has done it. He has overcome. Believe the gospel. Amen. Hey there. I hope the message that you just heard or viewed helped you to believe a little more that God is better than you thought, the love of Jesus is deeper than you know, and the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. If that's so, I'd love it if you would consider two things. Number one, ask yourself if there's someone that you know that might benefit from this message, and then uh, forward this link onto them. There are several ways that you can do that by visiting our website at thesanctuarydowntown.org. Secondly, I'd love it if you'd uh, take just a moment and uh, ask the Lord if He'd like you to contribute to this endeavor financially. We really can't do this except for the fact that God inspires people like you um, to give. And uh, you can do that by uh, going to the website and clicking on uh, the donate button or uh, by simply mailing a check to the Sanctuary downtown at uh, 2215 West 30th Avenue, Denver, Colorado, 802 one one. Uh, thanks for being a part of what we're doing and God bless you.